You're listening to the Life's Too Short podcast, produced by Partners in Care, home to Central Oregon's only hospice house. Discover more about our new hospice house and other outstanding services at partnersbend.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in the podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent Partners in Care and its employees. Hello and welcome to the Life's Too Short podcast. This is Jason Medina. And Lisa Hurley. Coming to you with our very first episode of Life's Too Short. Because life is too short. Which is why we need to drink coffee. We so need. Well, we are drinking coffee. We are. Thank you for my mocha this morning. You are so welcome. Well, really, we have to thank Brood Awakenings. We did our little drive through the kiosk and I'm having the dirty... (laughs) The dirty... (laughs) Keep going. <laughs> I'm having. I'm now I'm curious. The dirty bendite. Awesome. It's actually a chai Ooh. latte. Really good. And we got lucky that uh, it was the, the manager who served us and shared that they're local from Sun River. Wow, the dirty bend. It almost sounds like an article that would be in the source. Like what to do in bend and then what really to do in bend by the dirty bendite, right? <laughs> totally. I love that. <laughs> Oh, but great. you requested a mocha, so how's yours? I, I am actually almost finished. It was that good. And you put any liquid in front of me and it goes away very quickly, which is a bad <laughs> vice to have. So I'm just thinking our listeners are probably going, wait, is this going to be a podcast all about coffee? Oh, gosh, no. 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 No, we actually work for a local hospice a nonprofit here in Central Oregon. Uh, Lisa, why don't you tell them what you do? So I'm the outreach director. So my job really is just to be out in the community and let people know who we are, what we do, and how we can help them. From that work, I just feel like I'm so fortunate. I meet so many amazing people, as I know. So do you, Jason, in your role. And we'll talk about that because I want to ask you a couple of questions about um, some of the work you've done because it's been pretty incredible. But um, we we meet these folks that just share so much great wisdom and reflection, not really actually about end of life and dying, but living really well. Yes. And I always feel like we're fortunate to work in the work and do the work that we do because it constantly reminds us that life's too short. Absolutely. And to be reminded of what's really important. I... I served as a chaplain for many years within hospice, both here and in Southern California. Can I say that? And by watching patients and family members, what matters and where you should really be focusing your time. And as I, as I always used to say to volunteers, because I also served as a volunteer coordinator for a bit of time, like no one was ever at the deathbed going, man, I wish I would have put in more hours at work. But the thing people always wanted was to have close friends and family surrounding them. And that, that shows me what's really important. So why don't we do, do more of that as we're living? So true. Yeah. I, I think it's because we get so caught up in the minutia mm-hmm. of every day that um, we don't really stop and reflect on what is really important. Um, so we're, we're sitting in our studio and 
I just noticed above your head, Jason. Yes. Sing like no one can hear you. Yes. That's exactly what we're talking about. That's exactly. Right? Exactly. Do you do that? Do you sing like no one can hear you? Be honest. Every once in a while, I will. I feel like I'm a really great singer. You probably are. Would you like to practice right now? I'm really not. (laughs) But um, yeah, I do that only alone in my car, um, drowned out by the actual person that can sing. But for some reason, I feel like... I think I can. I think I can make a go of this. Mm. Um, just like I think I can do a podcast, and <laughs> I'm not quite sure if I can. Well, we'll find out. If there's a second episode posted right next to this first episode, <laughs> then we've made it. Our goal is, um, you know, today we're just kind of chatting with you all and mm-hmm. we want you to get to know us a little bit, but future podcasts, our intent is to um, interview some just really amazing people that we have in our Central Oregon community that I know I've learned from yes. over the years. and. I think all of you will learn something too. So that that's what's coming. But um, until then, I want to talk a little bit more about your work as a chaplain. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people probably don't even know what that is. Uh, or, or they have an assumption because they watched MASH once upon a time of what the Padre, you know, used right. to do. Oh, I loved him. Oh I, my gosh. I loved Radar. If you're a millennial, Google it. I... The best way I explain being a chaplain is it's not meant to represent one religion or one denomination or branch of that particular religion, but it really is someone who is focused on helping the patient and the family be connected to what brings them purpose or meaning or an overall narrative that they identify with that provides peace and comfort and strength while they face death. And so that could definitely be a a Christian family. That could be a Buddhist family. That could be a family that has absolutely no spiritual belief system whatsoever. Uh, for instance, I had a patient who loved British literature and an older British literature, uh, pre 20th century. And I sat with her every visit and I read aloud a tale of two cities by Dickens, because that's something that connected her with something bigger, the use of words, the use of language. And Dickens is so good at that though. I joke, it takes him five pages to describe one couch. Like he's just long. <laughs> um, but that was his beauty. And that was the, the era of his time of how he wrote but that's what she connected to. And so it's not necessarily my version of what I believe, but it's more going in the clinical word we use is assessing. So asking the patient or the family, you know, what, what has brought you connection? What has brought you hope? What is that narrative or those practices or those rituals that still give you life and help you celebrate life and then doing our best as a chaplain to facilitate those connections still. So to be a chaplain, can you go online and sign up for that like you everyone's doing now to marry their <laughs> friends and family? Oh, thank goodness, no. <laughs> okay, tell me how uh, how um, one becomes a chaplain. Like what's your what's your certification to be able to do that pretty uh, heavy work? It, yeah, it is. Um at least with partners in care and I'd say most hospices around the country have people who are ordained in a particular tradition and go through the rites of ordination. 
um, with their particular tradition. That's usually a, a religious board or a committee that oversees the entire educational process and, and ordination. So I'm personally, I'm ordained within a Christian denomination. Um, having a seminary background um, of at least a master's degree of could be a theology, possibly of pastoral counseling. And then specifically there's a class or a set of classes you can do. It's called clinical pastoral education where you can join a hospital or a hospice. Um, I happen to do mine parish based visiting people in the church. And for a set amount of time, mine was almost a year. You would visit people and then meet with your, the person, the, the professor who was leading this class, as well as others within your cohort and really just write out verbatims of your visits, how they went. And you just pick each other apart of, Hey, that was, that was a really stupid thing to say. Why did you say that at that point during the visit, which helps you learn who you are, your biases and how you approach visiting with people, especially if they're sick or at the end of life. So the first time, very first, fresh, fresh Mm -hmm. out of, uh, of school. Yep. And they send you off to your first dying patient. Oh my gosh. Tell me like, were you scared? Were you excited? What? I just can't imagine what that was like. What what I remember, I think this was my first patient, but I could be wrong because that whole first month I learned so much and was so overwhelmed. Um, The first call I went out, I went out with a, a current chaplain who was working at the hospice for someone who had just died. So we were there to comfort the spouse and it was a very difficult situation and how the patient died. There was already a nurse there, um, but it was traumatic how the patient died. And so it was the first, one of the first times I had actually seen someone who had just passed and then got to be there, not only for the the wife, but for the nurse as well. And I discovered a lot of chaplaincy is not just for the patients and families, before our fellow staff members as well. That's just as important yeah. as being there for the patient and families. Death is such an interesting concept. It is. One of my mentors always said his quote was, death is unreal. And I love that because hmm. we're so used to seeing animate objects move and breathe and talk and open their eyes or shut their eyes. And death is just, there's no other way to explain it. Death is unreal. Well, I think so many people don't really want to talk about it. Yeah. Yet, on the other hand, we're also fascinating and fascinated and um, watch a lot of or listen to podcasts right. even <laughs> about death and, you know, morbid and serial and all these things that might have stories around death, but we don't just thinking and talking about our own mortality and death in that way nobody wants to really talk about. I think in the Western world, we so appreciate having control and death reminds us that we ultimately don't. And for those who have, Richard Rohr calls it the second half of life. Um, For those who have a hard time stepping into that second half of life or David Brooks, um, the opinion writer for the New York times talks about the second mountain for those of us who have a hard time transitioning to that part of life. 
and giving up control and realizing there's so much more mystery out there. Those of us who still love controlled death just doesn't fit within that paradigm. Yeah, that's true. Or, or the death of a loved one or the death of a family member. Um, and even our rituals and practices have changed over the past hundred years. I, I remember so many either going to wakes or open caskets to pay respect. And we would go to the funeral home or the local church. If that's where, if that's where the open casket was at as a chaplain, I maybe have seen that once in my 14 or so years being part of hospice. And there's different reasons for that. That's not to say we, I'm not saying we have to create this rule to go back to an open casket, but I even know it used to be where the body was left in the house and people paid their respects. And now the body gets picked up within an hour of death by the funeral home and whisked off. And then they prepare the body and we, and there's just so much. I think we've, we've given up in terms of rituals and being a part of experiencing death and that reminder that death's a part of life. I think I'm, I'm just as listening to you. I'm like, wondering if it's because our society, I mean, we don't even talk in full sentences anymore. We <laughs> yeah. we talk in emojis and yes. texts. And yeah. so is it just like, like he died, sad face, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. is it that, you know, I think that just everything has to be so quick. Yeah. You know, okay. That happened. Yep. Like, and and even let's be done and move on. And, or and even I, bereavement. I, like for most companies and organizations, I think two, maybe three days, a standard bereavement time off, and then you're back to work. And even that particular expectation seems grander, probably from a, from a workforce, workforce standpoint, it makes sense in terms of productivity, I'm sure. But from a human standpoint, it used to be, and I, you know, it's it's right after the, the holiday season, one of our movies we watch as a family is it's a wonderful life. After George Bailey's dad dies, you see a scene where he's, um, chatting with the board and Mr. Potter's there and he's got black around his, around one of his arms that represents he's in mourning. And it used to be that you wore that for a given period of time so that people know you are grieving. You lost someone close to you. We don't do that anymore. There all these rituals and colors that were symbols and metaphors have been removed and it's okay. You get two days off and you get back to work and I hope you're as productive as when you, when you left. That um, that just makes me so sad, yeah. really, because it's a part of life. Yep. We're all going to go through it yeah. um, in some way mm-hmm. throughout our lives. And um, yeah, it feels like, yeah, you can't bring attention to it. Like, right. Um, yeah, it was interesting. We had, um, we do a lot of community education and Jason did this great panel recently where um, we had different faith-based leaders talk about spiritual traditions at end of life. And I was really fascinated by the rabbi that spoke about their tradition of ripping their clothes. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just to let people know, you know, that I, I'm experiencing this and, and it's okay. It's not a sign of anything. Like I'm not going to be productive or a weakness almost, but I'm proudly displaying that I'm sad and it's okay to be sad. Um, because it is, it's, it's difficult to lose someone you love. We've, we've privatized grief, I think to our detriment, but we've also grief is another one of those pieces of life that we can't control. My wife, um, when her father died, 
the grief would just be a huge wave that would crash over her in the most random of places. She tells a story of when she was in Ace Hardware and um, B-52's Love Shack came on the speakers and her, her father was a huge B-52's fan. One of his favorite songs was Love Shack. And just all of a sudden, she just started crying as she's in the checkout aisle. Just didn't expect this uncontrolled grief. Oh, my gosh. We're we're just scared of not being in control. And grief is another reminder that we aren't in control. You and I have talked about this before. Um, I know like my high school daughter has shared, like, when I tell people, Mom, that you work for hospice, they just say, oh, that's depressing. And... um, and I think that's kind of the common perception. And that's why we're doing this podcast. Right. Because what I said back to her is, actually, it's really not. It's quite the opposite. Because just always being, um, having that as a, the forefront of your day really makes you, I, I don't want to be cliche again and get our title out there, but life is is too short. Yeah. And, and it really is, you know, kind of helps me to remember that on a daily basis. But aside from that, I mean, gosh, and you probably know this better than I do because you are a a clinician. Um, It can be so beautiful too. When people ask what I... That sounds weird. I know for people listening out there might be like, what? But there's some beauty in, you know, a life complete. There is. And I always describe the role as amazing and exhausting um, because you work with people and working with people is always going to be amazing and exhausting. And when you, especially when you work with people at the end of, of their life um, and their family members who are, who are sitting vigil at bedside, it's uh, you are reminded life's too short, but it gives you such wisdom. If there's one takeaway for me of many takeaways of doing hospice is if you're willing to give up control and what you think is important, then however your faith or spirituality works, then see what God or see what the universe hands you that says, now I give you something that is important. tea drinkers out. Although I did have, I'm this technically is a dirty chai I'm drinking, the yes. dirty Bendite. Yes. So that officially <laughs> makes me a tea drinker. Yeah. But I don't really like the tea. You're not a tea drinker? I, I was so disappointed. I went through a, um, a very large chain coffee place recently to get my latte, uh-huh. got back to the office and I didn't get a latte. You got a tea. I got dirt. <laughs> it was green, oh. and it was, uh, and not as caffeinated. I couldn't even get through. Well, yeah. I wanted. Okay, here's the thing. All right, I'm open to new things. Yeah. So I'm like, you know what? I'm not driving back. I got this, you know, cup of dirt in front of me, <laughs> and I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be open minded. Mm-hmm. And try it, and um, I couldn't get through it. It not good. No, I think it was a matcha something. something. Oh, I'm not even sure I've tried a matcha before. I, well, yeah. so on, anyway, I, 
please don't call in. Well, we don't have a phone. No. So you can't call in. <laughs> but um, nothing against the tea drinkers, but Jason and I love coffee. And so each podcast, we're going to kind of highlight a local Central Oregon coffee. And I know Central Oregon's known for microbrews and our great beer. Yeah. But since we're doing this during work hours, I, I just don't think that'll fly. No. I don't know about you. I'm, I can't drink beer at 10 o'clock in the morning. No, I, no I'm, I'm yeah. more like That a, might be frowned upon. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it would be. No, <laughs> coffee. Coffee is the perfect drink for the morning. Yeah. Can't and, get any better. Well, and we have a lot of choices and yes. a lot of choices within the choices yeah. of different types of coffee. So... Um, you'll all have to stay tuned for Absolutely. that. Well, thanks everybody for listening. This is Life is Too Short.